Hello, listening lobes from around the globes. You're tuning into the final conversation of the third anthology of Lucid Dreaming, a space for dialogue and reverie with moving image makers and artists from around the world, hosted by author and film curator Pamela Cohn. This week, we return to your ear with an oceanic feeling like a cochlear octopus. Let the tentacle embrace you, and we shall begin. Hello, dreamers. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming podcast. I'm Pamela Cohn. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lawrence Lack. Although he was born in Frankfurt, Germany, his Chinese-Malaysian parents worked for Singapore Airlines, so Lawrence grew up peripatetically around the East, Osaka, Bangkok, and pre-handover Singapore and Hong Kong, a circumstance and influence that would inform his future art making. A student of architecture as an undergrad in the U.S., Lawrence currently lives in London as he pursues a Ph.D. in machine learning at the Royal Academy of Art. In his film VR animation installation and composing work, Lawrence continues to investigate and trouble how neoliberalism and nationhood shape geopolitical interactions between East and West. Not in any polarizing fashion, but more along the lines of what Lawrence calls different worlds nesting within one another. In 2016, Lawrence created a one-hour video essay and installation called Sino-Futurism 1839-2046 AD, where survival takes the form of following blunt directives from authority. At the end of Sino-Futurism, Lawrence says, in the West, the East is the other. In the East, the West is the other. He goes on, it is a relativistic mode of thinking as opposed to an oppositional one. I just say this from my position from having both these cultures embedded in my mindset. As a third-generation overseas Malaysian Chinese, I at least have the privilege of being self-aware about these things. Like much of his work, Sinofuturism combines elements of science fiction, documentary melodrama, social realism, and Chinese cosmologies in order to critique the present-day dilemmas of people living in China, as well as its diasporic populations around the world. With reference to Afrofuturism and Gulf Futurism, Sinofuturism presents by turns both serious and playful approaches to subverting cultural cliches. In 2017, Lawrence made a mid-length VR experience called Geomancer, an entity that would appear in other work wherein Leck uses simulation and virtual reality as the basis for an immersive experience. Geomancer is a computer-generated animation about the creative awakening of artificial intelligence. Set in Singapore on the eve of the island nation's centennial in 2065, the film tells the story of an environmental satellite that wishes to become an artist. Geomancer, the film, imagines the crisis that might happen when the world has become a techno-industrial complex run by a post-human intelligence, and creative originality is no longer considered to be that special. It's all in the proficiency in which one copies something according to a tenet of Sinofuturism. Geo is an entity that possesses human self-awareness and emotion, and can even dream. Lex says that this premise is strongly related to Shang-Chi's The Butterfly Dream. A man wakes from dreaming that he was a butterfly, and he doesn't know whether he is a man, or a butterfly dreaming he is a man. 
Along with several exhibitions and short videos made during this time, Lawrence realized his first feature-length piece called Idol, a CGI fantasy set in the year 2065 that revolves around the long and complex struggle between humanity, called bios, and artificial intelligence, called synths, the psychological impact of technology, and the transition between human-centric and non-human power structures. The spine of the narrative of Idol resides within its original score created and composed by Lawrence and produced by London-based independent label Hyperdub Records. Here, dovetailing all of his research and thought experiments from the last several years, Lawrence looks at the personal level concerning the psychology of celebrity and fame. Pop star diva. Think Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga-level fame, except they would be AI and their celebrity would expand out into the entire universe, struggles with the biggest fear of all, in which total and utter irrelevancy is always imminent. There is no comeback, only replacement. In Idol, we experience a world of perpetual surveillance and algorithmic governance, except that the fears of Big Brother have given way to consumerism and the desire for spectacle. Sounds uncannily like the world we currently inhabit, doesn't it? Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast, Lawrence. Thanks a lot, Pamela. Um, I want to let's let's start with with um, Idol or. Is that how it's pronounced? That is, that is how it's pronounced. It's it's subjective and it's yes. up to you. Well, you know, it could be AI doll, but um, I doll, right? Is it how... might it might be AIDOL, or it might be AIDOL. So let's start with with this amorphously titled piece as an entry point to how you set up building these dreamscapes of yours, because an 83-minute fantasia filled with um, philosophical battlefields of history and thought is a really tall order. But in your earlier work, we, we actually hear diva, you know, we, or a version of diva. And, um, you know, what does the framework of, of the musical journey of this piece provide you? Um, you said in an interview that, um, even before you make your sketch scripts, you're composing and, um, you finish working on the music because the music and voice somehow is the, sets the emotional tone for everything that follows. So could you talk about that a little bit? Because you're so schooled in so many different disciplines. And I think the joy of your work is that you, um, mash them all together into, you know, a, a very bespoke universe that, you know, really iterates, but also grows organically all of these ideas and, and um, philosophies that you espouse in your work. So if we could start there with the music, with the composing, with this mindset of entering this world um, just through our ears in the beginning. Um, and it's even set as if it's a visual album. We have the chapters, our tracks, and um, it's just a very interesting way to approach an overarching feature length piece of work. 
Yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks a lot for that um, description. It's really kind of you to, to say, because I mean, on one hand, it's a, um, it's a collage, right? Mm. On one hand, it's a kind of mishmash, and another, it's kind of like a synthesis of lots of things I'm interested in. Um, because for me, being really interested in, in lots of different art forms and taking each as a starting point, the reason I talk about composition is, you know, as a, as a sometimes musician, I often think of the difference between the composing phase and the performance phase, right? Um, because both in both you're treating time very differently and you're kind of what you're constructing. Because let's say as a, let's say composer, music or kind of architecture where I also have a background in, um, you're always designing a, a work or an artifact or a space or a piece of, a piece of music um, to be experienced in the future, if that makes sense. You know, you're kind of building these structures, writing these notes, drawing these blueprints and plans, um, designing a set, but with a future purpose in mind for it to be for it to be filmed or for it to be performed. Whereas when you're actually performing the piece of music, you're, you're squarely in real time. Mm -hmm. And what I feel is particularly interesting and you know, many different artists and uh, you know, uh, programmers, for example, have talked about this, is the difference between um, like, let's say real time composition or real time rendering when it comes to video games or virtual worlds or basically CGI versus essentially like pre-rendered things. And just to briefly explain the difference, it's like in a video game, every frame is being calculated at 30 or 60, 120 frames per second. Whereas in more traditional animation, everything from let's say, you know, Pixar, Toy Story to actually Disney Fantasia, each frame is, you know, a, a kind of labor of love that mm -hmm. takes a team to, um, you know, uh, sketch, draw, color, blah, 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 everything to do with each frame. So it's a slightly different um, compositional idea, I guess, you know, this idea of real-time video games, how that relates to histories of animation, how that relates to a kind of uh, cinema 24 frames per second as these different technical ideas of times collide. Um, what I find most interesting and actually most challenging with with Idol and with Geomancer, the kind of um, a prequel to it, mm -hmm. is um, actually how much of a challenge I personally felt stitching together narrative is in a very straightforward way. Like mm -hmm. I had been asking myself, because I made about 12 or 15 short films like CGI and Virtual Worlds, I always asked myself, um, prior to Geomancer, which was from 2017, I always wondered like, what, why is there this kind of short film glass ceiling when it comes to artist film? I asked myself, is it because of, um, you know, partly it's to do with budget, partly it's to do with, let's say, skill set or professionalization or division of labor. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a huge generalization and it applied to my work as well, is that I felt that many artist films or short films were essentially one-liners kind of like mm. short stories, you know, one thing happens or like one subversion of a visual trope happens, one comedic moment happens, one visual joke or reference happens or one mood pervades everything. So even if you think of, and it's not about duration necessarily, because if you think about, I know, to see to Dean or something, it's, it's, it's a one-liner, a very complex one-liner, but uh, as in it's a subversion about time. It's kind of, you know, doing one thing and doing it really well. And that's 
is similarly to what a good short story does. You know, it just takes one thing and it it kind of sees that to its conclusion. No subplots, no time for that. No, you know, no kind of messy basic stuff like you know plots and you know character development. None of that messy narrative stuff. Um, and so I, with with Geomancer and Idol, I kind of wanted to complicate matters. You know, to take mm. in different different visual uh, narrative visual you know technological tropes together because they all treat time differently um they treat narrative and i mean narrative not just plot but um i guess the uh, audience's discovery of exactly what is being said you know mm. all of these different things with the language of video games and the music video particularly with idol i was looking at um to to and that that was actually a huge challenge, I guess, with, with Idol. How does it, you know, how does it work as a, you know, so, something, you know, like a three act structure? How does it also work as an album of music videos? How does it work with this idea of, you know, corporate promotional videos where, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's a whole, um, you know, hidden narrative embedded within, within it. Um, but I mean, for me, what was important is that it kind of, hopefully could work whatever entry point or like amount of whatever film history or visual literacy that any, anybody would bring into it. Cause for me, that's how I discovered, um, you know, art and culture, not, I mean, essentially through popular, popular media. And it was really important for me that that hopefully somehow came through with, mm. with idol. Mm. And I think as a, as a final thing, it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned Fantasia at the beginning, because of course, um, you know, essentially that's a music video, right? That's a music video and and the whole premise of, of it, I mean, Sorcerer's Apprentice, is that in terms of animation, they're these inanimate objects, the, you know, the bucket, the mop, and so on, that come to life. And of course, this animist view of objects and technologies is really what I'm interested in, in mm -hmm. terms of, of course, you know, it's it's a thousand years in the future of this medieval sorcerer's world. But at the same time, it's about this, uh, this fuzzy boundary between what is alive and what, is, is, what isn't, what is inanimate and what isn't. And what I think is most important is, I mean, not most important, one of the things is, you know, um, life or to make something animate uh, is something that is kind of bestowed by the viewer on the object, because of course those objects aren't alive. They just give the semblance of um, being animated. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting in relation to, you know, AI and the Turing test, questions about consciousness and so on. There's a real um, interesting analog between these two, these two things. But it's also the communication between those two things as well. You know, that's quote unquote allowed. I mean, I use the word fantasia in a sense because you do present. I I, I want to want this to lead in more talking about this creative team you surrounded yourself with because it's a big project. Um, you're also directing actors, so to speak, um, in voice only, but through their voices. And to me, this is really a high level of achievement, actually. Um, it's not so much the physical animation, it's also that personality that goes along with that animation, right? Like even an, even an object needs to be imbued with um, thoughts and feelings and emotions. And this is really at the heart of 
your work. You know, this whole idea that a an entity, a non-human entity, um, desires, has human-like desires, has an expression of um, longing, you know, to incorporate love and the dream state and art making and imagination um, into their pre-programmed, um, you know, lives. Um, who who came on board in the sense of being that partner from the beginning um, that understood the vision and that was instrumental in helping you, let's call it cinematize um, the music? For me, it's it's funny because it's really, um, really organic. I mean, in, in, in these films, I generally just work with friends and yeah. people I know and, um, because I think, you know, for me, because being involved in both kind of like architecture and design and electronic music and kind of visual arts and kind of writing stuff, um, I guess I'm lucky enough to be able to just essentially call on, call on favors. It's, and it's slightly weird because, um, I remember doing quite a, a few, you know, like, um, filmmaking on a shoestring kind of courses like years ago and this kind of thing and they're like you know assemble your crew call in favors blah 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 and somebody you know is dop and somebody holds a mic it's it's a it's a similar thing with the virtual world in the sense of um but it everything kind of has its analog i think this idea of having like a you know a core crew who's basically a bunch a bunch of friends who do things together so for example um you know, um, in, in Idol, Teal, uh, who's the kind of evil CEO, is my friend Steve Goodman, who's a musician and also runs a record label company. And so it's kind of like, I kind of wrote the part for him mm -hmm. so he could say all the stuff to his wayward artists that he never would do in, in, in real life. <laughs> and um, Joni, who's the voice of Geomancer, like, you know, just a friend I, I, um, I met and she's used to translate a lot of my work and then I asked her to be the voice of certain things. And so for me, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, I remember reading a lot about, cause I'm, I'm always super interested, not just in, in kind of artworks, but also the, the context that they come from. So I really love, you know, the biographies of like artists or like, you know, who worked together on this album. And then later they were in that film. I, I, I find this like mythos of like, creative culture kind of really um I, I guess very interesting from a you know just fans point of view but I also find it very um how should I say very very liberating I guess because it it it's it it's at least on page or at least in hindsight it seems fairly organic and I always personally found this idea of you know um the the more filmmaking short coursing of like you know write a script get a producer on board i'm like how you know this 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 world of pitch basically mm -hmm. i find very un, unnatural and of course it, it it changes over time but for me what was really important was you know i, I talked about this you know this kind of glass ceiling with the, sh the artist short film so there's i think there's also in in music or in anything in general like this um, positive and negative sides to a kind of DIY mentality. Um, and 
the positive side is, you know, you kind of do things without asking for permission. So in terms of like, let's say filmmaking or animation, um, you know, Geomancer and Idol are like the most micro of micro budget things, especially in the world of animation where costs are much higher because of, you know, the division of labor and well, just the sheer amount of labor and expertise that needs to go into it. Um, Somehow I think what was most important was uh, to answer your question of who bought into the vision first, I guess it's my friends who I used to work on, you know, music and random performances with, if if, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that that came first and it also came in parallel with, I mean, it, my increased essentially cultural capital because by the time I made Idol, I'd been um, doing a lot of, you know, exhibitions and short films. And I guess I was fairly well known for doing this, you know, virtual worlds and art spaces kind of thing. For me, making Idol is less of a case of me convincing others. Mm-hmm. And I think me thinking, okay, what is, you know, the next challenge and I think for Geomancer I guess the challenge that I was thinking about with Geomancer was you know is it possible to do this kind of coming of age story from the perspective of an AI entirely as and and make it work as a as a story simply not just as a cool short film by this interesting person but actually as as a story um, that may be of interest for someone who knows nothing about me essentially Mm. because you know in in um what I realized also showing Idol in both a kind of uh, art context, institution gallery context, and in a film festival context, is kind of very humbling in a film festival context because it's like, they don't frankly care who the hell you are. They don't care about your amazing run of you know life history and so on, or like what you've done. It's just about the product, so to speak, you know? And, it, it, and um, when I showed Idol at, at, at Rotterdam earlier this year it was kind of really really interesting actually because I showed it a week later at Transmediale in in Berlin where you know everyone gets in the in jokes and the media theory and what's what it's about what it's referencing Mm. um so it's kind of the perfect crowd in a sense because you don't have to foreground the film with uh you know like what it um what what it's referencing, mm-hmm. but it was just so interesting presenting exactly the same work in two two contexts that I would have thought were very were, were one and the same, but actually I realized they're two very different things. Which is essentially being a trying to be a good video artist and trying to be a good director. It's like they they have significant overlaps, but they're very very different. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what I mean by that, but I just got a sense that um, the, you know, whether Idol is seen as artist moving image or animation really frames how it's seen. Um, and I'm not not to say that, you know, audiences aren't very sophisticated with a huge amount of visual literacy and so on. But I just think that initial presentation of, you know, is this a science sci-fi animation or is this like a you know um philosophical study into the nature of consciousness and celebrity it's it's two different ways of framing it yeah but you could also say yes to both those questions oh completely and and that's like i was saying with this idea of it being a kind of collage or kind of you know 
um, multifaceted thing. I mean, hopefully that comes across. What I do appreciate about your your work is that it it you make it with each piece you've done you've made it harder and harder to do that, um, so that um, you know I, I want to talk about these shorter works of yours just in 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 a little bit. But while you were talking, um, and as I was listening to you, I it's interesting because a lot of times I, I read a tremendous amount. I'm just one of those people that hoovers up books. I mean, I just, that's my school. It's my pleasure. It's everything. And at the moment, I'm, one of the books I'm reading is Kay Larson's Where the Heart Beats, which is, um, I would say, a biography of John Cage, um, but not, of course, a straight biography as you would do with most people, um, because it's also a lot about Zen Buddhism and about his spiritual awakening um, as an artist. And um, he says to a prospective student of his, who's also an artist, um, Titus O'Brien, um, he responds when, when Titus O'Brien confronts him with this Zen cone, um, that um, as individuals, we don't exist in the way we think we do. Um, and he sees the contradictions, of course, in someone who espouses to believe in that, but then, of course, as a human, normal human being, is doing other things that directly, you know, goes against that notion. And Cage responds to him and says, you have to play the game. And I don't come from, I'm super ignorant about gaming world, the gaming culture, but the idea of the games and also the gamblers who play those games and you say, you know, they know how to read the signs. They know there's a certain, um, there's a certain opening in certain people where the odds always weighing the odds of chance and the actual rules of the game um, and not only subverting those rules, but also abiding by them to get to the next level um, is something that I find really fascinating and that you also play with a lot in the midst of everything else that's going on. And, and this idea of indeterminacy as well, which I also don't think I ever really understood fully and still don't because I read a lot about indeterminacy. But I would love for you to talk about these two notions, this notion of gaming mm -hmm. um and and how that represents itself in your work and what you're most interested in um talking about 
um, because the the gaming and the indeterminacy do go hand in hand. You know, it's it's always the chance, the chance of losing, the chance of winning, the chance of playing the best game you can. Um, and this is also a big part of Geomancer as well. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that, I'd be really fascinated to hear what you have to say about those ideas. Sure. I mean, it's a obviously a huge subject, which are, yes. let, remind me the three things I think I'll kind of reflect on. One is I think the the idea of inter, indeterminacy or this you know the kind of but zen. i mean i mean these mm -hmm. ideas in the in in the context of art making yeah like, no, i'm sure, sorry i didn't sure. make that really clear but in the in that context of art making whether it's music whether it's poetry you know how how these things collide in terms of the ideas you want to put across because these are themes that i see in every one of your pieces in one way shape or form Sure. I mean, I think indeterminacy and, and, and chance has, there's a huge amount of uh, the kind of romantic ideal in that, because I think from a creative standpoint, it suggests that there's a way out of a, the paradigm of kind of logical objectivity and the idea that, you know, artistic production should be a rational process, whether that's, you know, you know, Eisenstein and montage or kind of theories of perspective and how to draw things correctly. Essentially, the creation of artistic rules around specific disciplines, um, especially, for example, John Cage and music, you know, composition should be one way. Um, and there's a way out, which might be ch chance or, you know, silence, for example. Mm. But I think specifically for gaming as well, because, um, you know, the situation situationists were really interested in games. Um, what is it? I think Duchamp was a, a very good chess player. Um, you know, this idea that um, games or the idea of chance or essentially chance, which in its human, to me, in, in its like human desire form, chance becomes gambling, basically. Chance becomes gambling. That's one thing. And I remember as a kid watching a lot of, you know, Taiwanese and Hong Kong soap operas, especially period dramas. Very interesting. I, I didn't think about this at the time. Is that every single one and it was like daytime tv playing at 2 p.m they talk about like fate and luck which mm. you know in especially in chinese culture this is this is a huge thing mm. and it's kind of like watching any daytime soap and they're talking you know no western daytime soap they would talk about fate and luck can we escape this whatever you know that the fact that i'm bound to like kill my own master this kind of thing but in these dramas, it would really be something at the foreground. So there's, you know, a very pop culture aspect to it, which goes very deep. And as well as this, um, I guess, like intellectual tradition of trying to escape the intellect, which is kind of weird when you think about it. You know, this, mm. this idea that, you know, whether it's, a, you know, a Zen or Taoism might offer a chance to, you know, deliver... The, the, the mind that's like caught within the shackles of rule-based creativity, um, which is fascinating, especially in how it pertains to uh, AI. Mm. So when I was, you know, researching and trying to you know, essentially do some tutorials on data science and, and deep learning, it's fascinating because um, 
of course, like any algorithm, it's, it's very rule-based, but go past a certain point in complexity um, and it becomes very difficult for the human mind to think more than, you know, five or six rules ahead um, with uh, moves ahead with chess. And Geomancer starts with um, a kind of remake of a Go match between AlphaGo, a Google DeepMind produced Go playing AI, and the Korean uh, kind of master Lee Sedol. And um, by the way, Lee Sedol, Sedol is actually, it's like a, was it like an honorific, which just means like Lee ninth dan like you might be a like ninth dan black belt in karate in in um in go playing you also have levels of mastery and so he's a ninth dan go player um and in this remake of this particular game in their five game match from 2016 um basically uh lee the human had already lost three of the five games so he had effectively won this match so this was kind of just um like a i think in the film i call it you know swan song of the genius so he plays this kind of genius move against AlphaGo, and so there's a kind of irony i found when looking at this because watch re-watching commentators live commentators of the game um, they're literally speechless. And, you know, one of them says, like, hand, the hand of God, basically. Mm-hmm. Hand of God being this final genius move that the human might make. And so this might be testament to, like, oh, human creativity through a game. I also thought the irony of that, of that was that you do this genius move once and you're essentially feeding the um, infinite, I mean, the huge learning capacity of the AI, which practically practically guarantees that you could never that essentially in in future games it would anticipate this move it would not just anticipate this move and um plan like counterattacks to it let's say but also use it against you and then because you as a human might have an emotional response you would be like oh you know which would be like fear anger i can't believe this ai is using my own move against me and so on <laughs> um and of course if you look at i don't know um any sport basically um you would see the same things play out and of course as people say you know games and and sport is a way that you know humanity has is uh what is it ways in which humanity has tried to sublimate the kind of competitive or violent instinct by kind of turning it into the arena of game playing like you know the olympic games and things i mean obviously things like running or javelin throwing are descended from um codified forms of war making or competition that because it's been put on the stage or essentially like um yeah a stage which happens to be like a stadium it allows this reenactment of violence or competition mm-hmm. in um, in a more formalized form, mm-hmm. um, but in a way in which you know the kind of violent animal instinct is beca- um, becomes a social activity, and not just a social activity, but a spectator sport. And of course, in in Idol, it's like that spectator sport. Um, the the finale in Idol takes place at the um, halftime esport super bowl which is you know it's no it's no longer american football it's um esports that's being fought against so there's this conflation of you know mass entertainment as um um you know sports 
violence and and music is kind of conjoined in this weird, um, I guess, hybrid spectacle, which of course, you know, 10 years or 20 years ago, people would complain about um, uh, the link of, for example, uh, the link between the 3D video game Doom and the Columbine High School Massacre. And, you know, mm. are, is this virtual world of violence kind of um, normalizing physical violence? And, you know, these many of these questions are really kind of alive today, as we see, for example, in, you know, Harun Faroqi's work, which explores a lot of the, um, you know, military simulation technologies and so on, mm. um, that, you know, um, feeds back into the real world, so to speak. Uh, especially now at, in this year. Yeah. Well, and especially in forever. <laughs> especially uh, because, forever, exactly. Yeah. Um, this notion, though, of this collective consciousness. So you, we're not talking about just a human collective consciousness anymore, right? We're talking about the collectivity of both human and non-human interaction, let's say, Um and that these states are equally valid, you know, each acts on the other. But this, um, you know, it's maybe this is a very sort of basic conversation, but this, the mood of your pieces is very slippery. Um, and maybe because it's the state I'm in at the moment, mm. <laughs> the emotional state, of course, what we bring to what we watch and read and, and observe, but, um, there seems to be, even on the part of the machines that inhabit this future world, um, still this desire to never, um, to never subsume um, the ability to love and the ability to suffer, and that the two of those, of course, go hand in hand. Why is it so important to you to keep coming back to the human emotions and our what what a lot of us perceive as our fallibility in fact um, to not advance beyond a certain level because we're prisoner to those emotions and in your work now we're we're, we're seeing this also being a quandary for the non-human entities i mean why what does that do to that relationship in your pieces, in your point of view? Um, and, and what kind of dialogue in a way, or what kind of dialogues, I should say, Socratic or otherwise, did you have with yourself as you were writing, trying to figure out the, um, I'm not going to say the proper balance is, is not right, but the proper sort of emotional tone? Um, I mean, when you're simultaneously trying to step away from those things, it's it, there's always this return. Um, and there's, um, at the end, I'll quote it because it's really beautiful. Guan Yin says to Gio, we can always shut our eyes to suffering, but we can never close our ears. This is the fate of the listener to bear the weight of the world, not with the arms of Atlas, but with the heart of Buddha. Therefore, when the lone singer sings, we can hear two voices, the call of beauty and a cry for help. I mean, this is a very poignant, beautiful um, thought, you know, um, and it's delivered in this sort of matter of fact way. Um, but the point is clear, you know, um, can you can you talk a little bit about those 
nuances because this is something I think that gaming, the video world, even a lot of AI, it just seems to stay away from with a vengeance, you know, in, and, and move more into another direction. Um, this is changing, I think, a little bit um, as we're all becoming aware of the benefits of what AI can do. Um, but if you would talk a little bit about the, I'm talking about your creative process now, um, because you are the ones putting these words into your characters' mouths. Sure. I'm, for me, I guess the idea of, um, I guess, alienation and belonging and the idea of like hopes and fears and, you know, love and hate are really, I guess, primal and deeply set into everything I do. But it's things that you can't tackle head on, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, raw emotion is, it's kind of like too direct and there's kind of no reason for anyone to buy into that. It's it's too direct because it's, you know, sugar sugar-coated and you can take it from like a, you know, a pop song declaration or something like that. Mm. Um, and, but for me personally, with, especially with the kind of music and, and the words that I'm trying to use, it's, it's actually the most important thing, but I think the nature of it has changed so much actually. Um, take for example, our relationship to, um, celebrity that diva in in idol represents right mm -hmm. so the diva or this whole idea of celebrity i mean i'll talk about how it relates to emotions but it's an interesting thing in terms of um you know uh our engagement with media figures or media culture because diva because by the time the film starts she's been in the entertainment industry for decades and she's seen the evolution of stardom from being, you know, this inaccessible star with their own aura on the big silver screen. She's seen that change to what we see increasingly today where, um, you know, influencers on social media have a much more direct, we are best friends, I'm in your bedroom, we're mm -hmm. singing together kind of relationship with their, with their audience or with their fans, which is very different from the, you know, inaccessible film star previously. And that's to do both with, you know, technology, marketing, but also our uh, relationship with, you know, the other, not, not the other, you know, capital O, but, you know, just other people and other beings. Um, and so it's really important for me thinking about this and also the, I guess, the Faustian pact of, you know, this eternal Faustian pact of, you know, fame and success that partly plays into it. This, I, this, this final quote of like, you know, the lone singer singing and it's like, you know, like really something like a, a moment of beauty on offer and at the same time a cry for help. It just made me really, I, um, I was watching what like um, Prince's halftime Super Bowl performance, I think a few years before he passed away and he's singing purple rain in the pouring rain as if, and the environment, you know, the, the skies opened up as if on cue and mm. he just happens to see that um he just happens to be singing that song and not just not just the grand spectacle of it but i guess kind of the um like what is it like the pathos or the emotion that you get 
from seeing this. You know, it's simultaneously, um, yeah, like beautiful and sad at the same time. You have these two emotions happening simultaneously that makes things slippery. Or, you know, when you see something, um, something luxurious, and this was something I played on in my earlier work, when you see something luxurious, you simultaneously get a kind of a desire for it. And also, if you realize that you can never realize that desire, then you're then a disdain for it. You're like, oh, I want that, but it's also like beneath me in a certain way. And you know, it's the way that we deal with um, the inaccessible or things that we can't have. Mm-hmm. Video games in particular, um, and this has been written about a lot, you know, allow us to become uh, virtual versions of our better selves you know we're uh, we're immune to certain things we can live forever in certain contexts we can do certain things we can be different people we can look, look a different way we can say things we wouldn't do in reality and we have power over others and ourself um of course it's the sad moment comes when you switch off just like after binge watching something and you realize of course you are just yourself but these Um, these others live on within you in a persistent way. Mm. Um, I always found it very interesting how long these characters live on within you is also related to how long you've spent immersed in these other worlds. You know, Pamela, earlier you said you're a a big reader. And for me as like, you know, I love reading novels, haven't in a while, but when I do, it's interesting because generally a novel, you don't read it in one sitting, you know? you read it in like, let's say 10 and in between every night or every day when you close the book, the characters or the stories live on in your mind, either consciously Mm -hmm. or subconsciously, you know, you're like, what is this person doing? Are they going to do that? Et cetera, et cetera. And so it has a parallel life inside the reader or the audience's head, kind of like, you know, series used to be, I mean, and novels and TV series used to end very often on cliffhangers, right? You're like, which is a deliberately manufactured way to make the story live on in the reader or the viewer's head. Video games have this with different, let's say addictive mechanics. Like it's literally um, studies of dopamine response to, you know, bright lights, shiny colors, objects you can gather. So all of these different art forms, what I'm trying to say is develop an emotional connection with the viewer, it's not love or fear, it's much more actually basic than that. It's like, you know, I need to see what happens in the next episode. I need to get that gun in the game. I need to finish it. Um, That is really interesting. It's a slightly different uh, relationship to the emotional response, I think, that we're saying, you know, love and fear, these like Mm -hmm, much more mm -hmm. primal instincts. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, just as interesting, especially given how, um, I guess, mediated all our experiences of, uh, I mean, art generally, generally speaking, are, are today, and how dependent we are on much wider structures on, on kind of uh, receiving these. Mm-hmm. So how the tenets of, of, of Sinofuturism that you came up with many, many years ago, this sort of like the authority says this, the authority says that, and this is the outcome. Um, How much of that has, has it morphed and changed at all for you since creating that quasi documentary, you know, you're playing with a lot of things there, but it's a much more, 
I would say fractured um, world than than the other worlds that you create. The other worlds you create in your films are more of a piece, let's say, even though there's a lot going on. But in in the beginning of this and and this this historical arc between 1839 and 2046, um, this you talk about. I mean, as I'm listening to you, and I'm I'm. I'm thinking about those things that you bring up in terms of addiction, in terms of copying, in terms of studying and what these things provide for you in order to get people to keep doing those things. Why is it so essential, particularly in Chinese culture and the diaspora as well, you know, for those Chinese in China, but also those who take those um, tenets with them into the wider world. Can can you just talk a little bit about that structure within the family unit? I mean, maybe there's something you can remember from your growing up years because you were very peripatetic, but you were in these places um, that were, I guess, linguistically and ideologically um your classroom so to speak yeah, you know sure. and and sort of formed these ideas as you were growing older and then you know coming upon this sort of way in which you imprint these very fundamental things into your artwork i just i find that a very fascinating um arc in a sense yeah i think i think one of the things that i really took for granted growing up in you know southeast asia it was that hybridity was the norm rather than the exception or rather than something um some yeah something strange or um yeah hybridity was the norm because both in terms of you know post-colonial geographies and questions of like identity what what the national language should be in these different places you know what the um what the national, I guess, religion would be or what would be socially or morally acceptable was actually still very much in, in flux because there's a shadow of um, post-colonial thought, which was not decolonial in the same way that it might be nowadays. Right. For example, in, in like Anglophile parts of Singapore, Malaysia or Hong Kong, the association between English as a language and, you know, let's say Great Britain as a former colonial power was to a lot of people positive because the threat of, um, uh, because it's, it's basically, it seemed more appealing than threatening. So as time goes on, I, and at the same time, there's a way of um, making this non-contradictory to a certain amount of self desire for self-determination right mm. so this desire to maintain history to some extent with a desire for self-determination for example in many uh for like um newly independent countries there's a habit of renaming you know like thames street into whatever indigenous or local languages you know it's essentially erasure of the colonial past, um, whether that colony would be Japan in the case of Taiwan, for example, or the UK in the case of Singapore. Um, with Singapore, there was a explicit economic decision made to um, maintain colonial links 
but it was rationalized in the sense that let's not scare away Western multinationals. Let's, <laughs> you know, let's make it look like we're still open for business. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a fairly well-known essay about Singapore by William Gibson called Disneyland with the Death Penalty, um, in which he, he wrote in, I think, 1993 for Wired magazine. And it was actually, I think, maybe the fourth issue or something, or like one of the first issues of Wired magazine. And um, it became, you know, it's essentially painting Singapore as Disneyland with a death penalty. Of course, when I read this as a teenager, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, like it's such a um, authoritarian nation with like all these restrictions. And he's totally right. Reading it today, you're kind of struck by the, um, you know, neo-orientalist neo viewpoint that it's very strange that his cyberpunk world is set in, you know, this neo-Tokyo kind of Chiba. And so it could use the same uh, neon aesthetic for, um, let's say, you know, in, in, in the novel Neuromancer, but at the same time, when confronted with a kind of a version, a hybrid reality that doesn't fit neatly into, you know, the kind of Eastern high-tech metropolis mm -hmm. or into the um, orderly uh, authoritarian state, it becomes a very kind of critical piece as if like, um, basically what I found was so surprising that for an author so well known for creating hybrid worlds when confronted with an, an actual hybrid nation state, Singapore in 1993, he couldn't, um, reconcile both of these and it ends up being actually quite a judgmental piece where he's like saying it's so sterile that I can't wait to be, get out of here so Geomancer I, I basically reread this when I was um, making the video essay Sinofuturism and when I was writing the screenplay for Geomancer and it really made me reflect you know um, on my own preconceptions being both inherited from this kind of, you know, critical dystopia, let's say, as well as from this idea of like sovereignty and independence and this kind of post-colonial mentality. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, with, with, with Geomancer and Idol, which are set in Singapore and, and Malaysia respectively, I kind of wanted to revisit these places or create alternate versions where it, um, both of these ideas, like sovereignty and servitude, kind of coexist at the, at, at, at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just to make a note, in Sign of Futurism, it's a video essay and is made with a, as a kind of collage video essay using found footage. Um, like you would get, I don't know, like an Adam Curtis documentary slash conspiracy theory. <laughs> and it's very different from the kind of CGI auteur mm -hmm. stuff that I usually do. But that's also because it was in the spirit of the work that came out of um, as essentially like a byproduct when I was writing the script for, and researching AI for Geomancer. I was thinking, oh, Disneyland with the death penalty, where does that sit? Why does it seem so out of place today? Mm -hmm. Why do I no longer relate to it? And so when I researched this idea of Sinofuturism, I was talking to a few friends like, uh, Joni Su, who's from Shanghai, and, and Steve Goodman, who's been, you know, looking at this idea of cultural virality for a long time. I was just really, I, I basically made Sign of Futurism because it 
I was surprised that it didn't exist in the same way that you would have a lot of interesting work about futurism or Afrofuturism, Gulf futurism, or, you know, mundane Afrofuturism, you know, that not only were alternative futurisms made, there was also counter futurisms and counter counter futurisms, but not with this specific kind of geographical context and mm -hmm. also culturally slightly playful or subversive mindset that I was interested in mm -hmm. uh, exploring. So that's mm -hmm. kind of why I made Sinofuturism. Um, I mean, unlike Geomancer and Idol, there was, you know, no budget, no funding. I kind of made it just because I felt like it, I mm -hmm. suppose. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important that that film have that feel, you know, I don't think it would have that same effectiveness if if it were a more seamless or let's say more detached um, look at what what precisely you're talking about. Just to wrap up, I mean, as as we move in in reality towards this this future date that you've always played with in terms of independence in terms of these milestones, let's say, of a century of this, um, two centuries of that, you know, 500 years of this. I mean, in, in that cares? culture, it goes way, way back. But in, in your work moving forward, I mean, are you going to continue to propel yourself beyond even that proposed future, which is now coming closer and closer as we speak. I mean, the way in which you play with time and the way you talked about it in the beginning of this conversation is important, I think, now more than ever when so much around us is accelerating beyond, I think, I'll speak personally, what is psychologically comfortable mm, sure. um, without having a nervous breakdown, you know, every other month, you know, um, I'm wondering what's preoccupying you now in terms of those thoughts and what you might delve into um, that might be, you know, either a continuation or a departure or an evolution, let's say, of, of, of these ideas specifically of time um, that, that you've been dealing with in your work thus far. Sure. I mean, I think the, the you know, as a, individual the political nature of you know 24 7 time and 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 work is is really important and i feel to some extent even though idol is set in the year 2065 it's dealing with this you know essentially the attention economy you mm -hmm. know through media and celebrity um, absolutely but i'm kind of currently working again yeah like on more like science fiction in the near future but then you know you ask does it if it's in the near future, is it really science fiction? And again, what is science the difference between science fiction and speculative fiction and so on in a, in a world where um, a lot of these futures aren't just being imagined, but uh, are kind of economically motivated with, mm. you know, trend for forecasting and, and all the rest of that machine. Um, I think the horizon the horizon of you know 10 20 30 years in the future always is quite interesting if i mean if we look at let's say blockbuster science fiction um it's sometimes not set that far into the future i mean if we think blade runner of course it's from philip k dick but if we think blade runner is what 1982 or 83 and it was set in 2019 which is what 37 37 years 
in the future. Mm. The re recent video game Cyberpunk 2077, which is a sequel from a late 80s video game called Cyberpunk 2020. That's 57 years in the future. In 2046, um, in Sign of Futures in 1839 to 2046, 2046 is a reference, of course, to the Wong Kar Wai film 2046, which um, maybe not everyone knows. The reason it's 2046 is that's 50 years after Hong Kong's handover back to mainland China, which mm -hmm. is also meant to be the expiry date of the, um, you know, uh, Hong Kong's slight autonomy or whatever that might be now. Um, so this idea that the future has an expiry date is very interesting, very kind of poignant in terms of, um, I guess, emotionally as well, because sometimes people might think it's, you know, what is an expiry date, right? It's a window of opportunity when you can eat a can of pineapple or, you know, you can maybe transition to a different political system. So I think there's a real, going back to this idea of emotion or pathos, um, it's very interesting that when you have a future that's not um, associated with utopian dreams or dystopian nightmares, mm -hmm. but it's associated, you know, it's nothing as grand as that. It's just with a sense of personal hope or personal loss. It's really interesting. And, you know, as we're at the tail end of 2020, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's this, you know, this lost year and, you know, what is time? You know, it's, it's kind of reordered our sense of, this, um, you know, metric clock time that governs the uh, attention economy. So I think for me, it's in, in, in current work, I'm interested in, I guess, the near future and also thinking about, um, I don't know, thinking about like not a distant horizon, but a very close horizon that just feels as strange as, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years into the future would have been a few years ago. Mm. Um, as like you're saying, contemporary reality is extremely strange. So basically I, I also think it would just be very weird if I continued mining the future when actually maybe it's very important to record or reflect on the present in, in, different, in different ways. Um, like I'm currently writing or just finished writing like a screenplay and working on a new film. That's also to do with, you know, non-human agency and consciousness. But I guess actually from a, it's kind of like a crime story actually. Mm. So it's more from this point of view of not just conceptual or philosophical personhood or consciousness, but legal personhood. And it's kind of looking at, you know, non-human rights or like AI rights and what's called electronic personhood as not philosophical questions of whether, you know, an AI can have consciousness, but what legal status they might possibly have one, if and when they do. So, um, for example, in cases like uh, a self-driving car kills someone, whose fault is it? Currently, it's, you know, Uber or Volvo's fault, and they pay a fine for that. But there might be cases in the future where, as, as we've seen this year, actually, um, Humanity loves a scapegoat, right? Humanity yeah. loves having someone, something, someone else, some animal, some technology, whatever. We always l love to pin the blame on something. Um, I guess part of human nature, you know, don't want to take responsibility. So I guess the new work thinks about things like this. I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of, 
it's much more, um, uh, it's just as philosophical, but I guess it's grounded in uh, stories to do with like crime and what that means when, you know, let's say the criminal is no longer human. Mm. Mm. The moral universe. The moral universe, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it's the moral universe. And it's interesting because of course in, you know, thrillers or noir, the moral universe is very shades of gray, right? It's never black and white. Exactly. Um, yeah. And many, uh, many technology companies deliberately set out their strategy is to operate in legal gray zones because, mm-hmm. you know, there's no regulation. Um, there's like, not just tax incentives, there's less legal regulation about data privacy, for example, less regulation about um, what you can harvest in terms of information. So this is, you know, a fertile field if, you know, big data is your thing, which is kind of, um, you know, without getting too big brother dystopian about it, there's, um, it it just raises many different uh, emotional questions, I guess, you know, about like what's right and wrong. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for this fantastic conversation. I, I really, I could talk to you for another three hours. No, thanks so much, Pamela <laughs> and Luke. It's, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, it has. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode and for this anthology. We'll return on a distant horizon when the earth has turned again. Lucid Dreaming is a production of Lono Studio, hosted by Pamela Cohn. If you like this episode, if you like the anthology, please do leave us a review and share it with your friends, your mates, your pals, your acquaintances. Goodbye, dreamers.